0: Welcome to the Brain Health News Podcast, part of Health Unmuted. This podcast was created by Mission-Based Media in association with the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. In this episode, we feature a recording of a roundtable discussion that was hosted by the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative at the World Economic Forum annual meeting on January 16, 2024. The event brought together prominent leaders in government, industry, academic, and global communities to share cutting-edge strategies and innovations for accelerating brain health globally. This episode is a little bit longer than many of the others in this series, and it is time well spent. It's filled with insightful conversations and groundbreaking initiatives aimed at driving down the cost of dementia care, preventing cognitive impairment through lifestyle modifications, and advancing early treatment of Alzheimer's. From revolutionary vaccine developments to cutting-edge lifestyle interventions, this episode brings you the most up-to-date information on the prevention and treatment of cognitive decline. So now, let's join our host, George Vradenberg, at this roundtable discussion. Enjoy.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, my name is George Vadenberg. I'm the founding chairman of the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, which was born here about three years ago. Let me just give you a little layout of the run of the show, because this is going to probably be a half hour of overhead where you're going to listen to some people, but then we have the rest of the time entirely devoted to conversation. First, I want to tell you, you're going to hear from Victor Zhao, as the president of the National Academy of Medicine. Victor Zhao is going to give us a few opening comments and then I'm going to give a little us background and setup to the context in this. And we have Professor Mia Cavapelto here from the Fingers Institute. And in, where are you? You're just a global character to talk about her work, which was really groundbreaking and continues to be groundbreaking. And then our chief operating officer, Drew Holzapple is gonna speak about exactly what DAC does so that you know what we do, as opposed to what we stand for, which is brain health driving prevention of Alzheimer's. Victor, please, some opening comments, opening thoughts about brain health and the prevention of Alzheimer's. Well by the way, he's on my board of directors, so he's my <laughs> boss, he's my boss.
2: <laughs> Thank you, it's a great privilege to be here and to say what a wonderful initiative this is. I've actually been following this since George launched it back in 2021. In fact, I was in some of the early meetings. And watch his great ambition and his vision. It's really quite, to me, rewarding, and astounding to see where it is today. So I'm so glad that I'm serving on this board and of course being able to follow the many, many things he's doing. Very impressive indeed. And you're gonna hear some more about this. So I'm just gonna open up this meeting with just a few short remarks. First of all, of course, we're all here for the same reason. Mental health, brain health is so important. We know that mental illness is a major disease burden globally. And in fact, the negative impact on human health and well-being is significant. You're gonna hear a lot more about this, particularly as it relates to Alzheimer's. It's a major area of unmet need. So in this context, I think achieving brain health is an imperative for health, no question about this. And also, promoting brain health is being recognized as an economic imperative as well. Health imperative, economic imperative. You're gonna hear a lot of data on this, certainly here in Davos, about economics. And certainly, the number says the OECD estimates impaired brain health costs global economy up to $8.5 trillion a year, lost productivity, and so many other issues. And so the opportunity for economic growth is huge, but let's face it, I'm a health person. The more important opportunity, of course, is the brain health, where we can all thrive, live well, and particularly as you age. And even, as you know, in the issue of mental health, there's really substantial impact, adolescents and younger adults as well. I think we all believe in UXC and SDG, universal health coverage, is one of WHO's strategic pillars and a prerequisite for achieving SDG3, which ensures lives and promoting well-being for all ages, their target of 3.8. So integrating brain health, in my opinion, is essential in the framework integrated into UXC. And so, because this will result in healthier individuals, healthier societies, and expand potential innovation, and economic growth. So, of course, as I said, the most important thing to me is to enable better lives, better well-being for all our citizens and our population. So I think there's no question why you're here today, because there's an urgent need for increasing global collaboration and strengthening global architecture to enable brain health. And I want to congratulate George for really taking this on and particularly focus on. Alzheimer's, which is a major issue for our society and for many of us. So thank you very much.
1: Victor is a real force in uh, global health issues. You have to sort of wander around with him and see how many different places he is during the course of Davos. Or I was at the World Health Summit in Berlin. He was in virtually every meeting. The World Health Summit focuses on infectious disease and there's too little attention to the rising incidence prevalence of chronic diseases of aging and of Alzheimer's. So we're trying to set out here in Davos to begin the conversation about the importance and centrality of the brain, not just to suppression of disease, but also as an economic driver in this century. So this is gonna be about brain health, but also about brain disease. So you'll hear both of those, but they are the yin and the yang. To the extent that you are a healthier brain and a stronger brain and a more synaptic connected brain, the more your capacity to resist disease. So these are two interrelated ideas, but they are central to human health and to the economy. No question that we're all living longer. Fortunately, this is the good news. It's better than the alternative. And so I think this is good news for the world. It's good news because we can see how much of economic growth in the 20th century was driven by our increasing longevity. More people working more productively and driving economic growth. That continues. But we do not want the Greek myth of Tetonius where basically he was given one question of Zeus. His one wish of Zeus was that he lived forever. He forgot to ask to be healthy as long as he lived. And today we're beginning to focus on that, but rarely do you hear people talk about your brain span equaling your health span equaling your lifespan. Because who wants to have the last 10 years of your life living in some state of dementia where all the memories of your life are gone? Prevalent disease, huge. 50 million people around the world. But this disease starts 25 years or so before you get symptoms. So this estimate of 50 million people diagnosed around the world needs to be multiplied by a factor of eight in order to get the total number of people actually experiencing this disease in its preclinical or pre-symptomatic state or symptomatic state. So we're talking 400 million plus people already in the world with this disease. And that's expected to triple by 2050. That's just an enormous number of people. So the estimate is 150 million people with diagnosed disease by 2050. That's over a billion people that will have this disease in its either pre-symptomatic form or symptomatic form by the middle of the century. The costs to the society, to individual families, to the suffering of any of you who have experienced this in your family know that the caregiver bears probably as much burden in terms of the disease uh, as the person with dementia. It turns out that caregivers have worse health outcomes. It turns out that the caregivers die earlier than they would absent being caregiver. So caregiving, those numbers, which I mentioned, which are already huge, have to be multiplied by another factor of two to get the real burden of disease. Now I am in this game because my family has had three generations die of this disease. And so all of this is driven by the urgency that a patient feels, or an individual feels, who have experienced this disease. You will see on your chair the Alzheimer's Bill of Rights from my friend and colleague Jim Taylor, who heads an organization in the United States, about one year old, now which it is governed by and made up primarily of people who actually have this disease and their caregivers. So that if you look at an organization that has the authenticity of the authority to say this is important to us, he has articulated an Alzheimer's family's bill of rights. 2023 was actually a pretty good year for us. We had the first disease modifying drug fully approved by the FDA and covered by Medicare. We still have issues with Medicare, but at least primarily covered. Now this disease was identified in 1906 2023 was the first time we have a disease-modifying agent. It's been a while, folks, and for the patient community, this is really good news. With that said, this has a modest benefit. It reduces the rate of decline by maybe 25%, 27%. It has side effects, and it's expensive, and it's difficult to get on the drug because you have to be monitored for safety, and as suggested by the FDA, monitored for your genetics. So this is tough. It's now been six months since this has been approved. In the United States, my guess is there are fewer than 1,000 people who are actually on this drug. So this is a slow roll, guys. And it it's never gonna hit the rest of the world. Too expensive, too hard to get on, too limited a benefit, and too costly for the world. So the large, huge driver of our efforts at DAC is how do we get the costs down of detecting your risk for the disease. How do you get the cost down of getting diagnosed with the disease? And how do you get the cost down of actually getting a treatment that will slow or prevent the disease? And there are gonna be drugs in the pipeline, and clearly we ought to be aiming for a vaccine, which you're gonna hear about from Andrea Pfeiffer today. I'll ask her a question about this. But there is, in process now, eight companies with vaccines and clinical development with some major investments going on. And in the same room are regulators and payers, because they're saying, this is our problem. How do we approve a vaccine without you're basically having a 10 year trial to demonstrate that the vaccines are working in some people and not working in those people who don't take the vaccine. So we have regulators at the table wanting to try to solve the problem But for them, this is a real scientific issue to demonstrate the efficacy of the vaccines and importantly for the safety. But that's where we should be going on the therapeutic side. But even more important in terms of what we can do today, what we can actually do in the real world today at low cost and effectively around the world is a set of developments around prevention in the sense that we can through interfering with things that we can control, our cardiometabolic conditions, our heart, diabetes, and obesity, plus lifestyle factors, we actually can prevent up to 40% of the cases of dementia in the future. The person that actually demonstrated this proposition, which was not understood at all at the time, is Mia Cavapelto. Mia is the head of the Fingers Institute and in 2015 produced a trial, which she can describe, which basically shows that lifestyle factors can, in fact, improve your cognition through time. And she is now, she will describe this as well, beginning to look at a combination trial of therapeutic interventions for cardiovascular disease associated with lifestyle factors to demonstrate the additional power of putting those two things together. That can be done today around the world with primary care physicians, with community health workers. We can do it today, folks. Now, this is just a problem of implementation. It's non-trivial. But this is a matter of how we get countries around the world as a national policy to put in place treatments for cardiovascular and metabolic disease accompanied with lifestyle factors and then train the primary care workforce, the health community health workers around the world. You'll hear from Drew about our work in Kenya and community health workers or in other countries of the world. How do you actually train up a primary care workforce to do this? this could be done today. And it's really the result of the insights and the work of Mia Cavapelta who taught us, this could be done. So Mia, thank you for your pioneering work, your continuing work, and now our partnership with (laughs) DAC.
3: Thank you so much, George. It's my great pleasure to be here and see so many of you here. I think we all share the vision that brain health and prevention should be the priority. It's our future in the aging societies, in modern societies, and there is so much we can do already today. And after listening to you, I'm convinced that with joint forces, we can do even more in the future, really to improve and maintain brain health throughout the whole life course globally. So I'm happy to give some scientific background because I believe, and I think we all believe that what we do, our actions should be science-based and science is moving on very quickly nowadays. So it's important that we try always to take the latest scientific evidence when we are moving to implementation. So cognitive impairment and dementia, as we heard, they are the major challenges for the brain health in the aging societies. I think we can talk about dementia epidemic and really prevention. It is the key if we want to manage the dementia epidemic globally. And luckily, it's not anymore only high age and genetics, which are the only linked factors to dementia. And I think we still need to do quite a lot of work to educate persons that dementia is not part of normal ageing, but there is so much we can do to reduce the risk. As we heard, 40% of all dementias are linked to modifiable lifestyle-based vascular environmental risk factors. And actually, this number may be even higher. There is now a new Lancet Commission paper coming soon. We are also working with the new risk reduction guidelines from WHO. So the risk or the prevention potential may actually be up to 50%. Isn't a wonderful number? 50% of all dimensions are linked to modifiable risk factors. And there are new factors coming about hearing loss, visual loss and other factors, air pollution. So it's not anymore only the traditional cardiovascular lifestyle factors. So the science is really moving on. It has been more difficult to translate the observational studies to successful clinical trials. And of course, clinical trials is the highest level of evidence. And that's what we tried to do in the FINGER trial. We thought, there are so many risk factors, we need to have a multi-domain intervention targeting several risk factors and mechanisms at the same time to get an optimal preventive effect. And that's what we did in the finger trial. The finger model has five fingers, I think it's easy to remember, and we are learning all the time more and more about these five fingers. Healthy, balanced diet, so important for the brain health throughout the whole life course. Physical activity, I think that's one of the most powerful medicines we have for the brain health. Everything that is happening in the body and the brain when we are physical active. And you know, we are the heads down generation. You know how many hours we are sitting every day too many, nine to ten hours, even small children. So everything we can do to increase physical activity is surely important for the brain health. The third finger, cognitive stimulation, mental activities. We have learned so much about the brain plasticity. Everything what we are doing is affecting the structure and the function of the brain, and the brain plasticity is there throughout the whole life course. So, I think that's a very important part of the model as well. The fourth one, social activities, very important for the brain health and well-being. And part of the social activity is also relaxation, stress management and sleep, important in our societies. And we have been thinking a lot also that in the intergenerational aspect, having children and all the people together. I think this is really what we talked yesterday, what I started to think very important part of this social, cognitive and physical stimulation. Fifth finger, taking care of all cardiovascular risk factors, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, obesity. What is good for the heart is good for the brain. And here, I would add the latest evidence, is more the holistic care, hearing, vision as well. So there are so many things we can do there. Many of you know the finger results, but I just mentioned a few aspects of those. It was not only memory, but also the processing speed, executive function, it's not only preventing cognitive decline, this is maintaining, optimizing the brain health. Functional level was better, quality of life was better. 30% reduced risk of stroke. And quite strikingly, up to 60% reduced risk of multi-morbidity and even health economical benefits. So the same model can benefit brain health, general health, individual and societal level. And one question what they often get is, how about if I have risk genes, can I still do something with the lifestyle? The answer is yes, we have now evidence from worldwide fingers that ApoE4 carriers are getting clear benefit from this intervention. So I would say that genetics is maybe not as non-modifiable as we have been thinking. Second important question, how about if I have early Alzheimer's, can I still do something with lifestyle? The answer is again, yes. We have been testing that, and the effect of lifestyle intervention is not ending when you get the diagnosis. Highlighting the need and importance of post-diagnostic support as well. We have now the Worldwide Fingers, which we launched 2017, because there was so great interest globally to test and optimize these multi-domain interventions. And I'm very happy that today we are having more than 60 countries from all continents who are part of the worldwide fingers network. Many of the countries are low middle-income countries, where the numbers are increasing even more rapidly. We have Africa fingers, we have Latin fingers, wonderful examples. And As part of this network, we are upgrading finger to finger 2.0, where we aim to have more individualized, more tailored interventions, and combining with medications when needed, so that the right persons get the right treatment at the right time. New technology, I believe, will be important here to make the intervention even more scalable and even more effective. And finally, implementation. That's something we want to support. You know, it takes normally 15 to 20 years to implement the research findings I think it's too long time. We can't simply wait when it comes to lifestyle interventions. So as an example, we support brain health clinics. Our memory clinics are not so prepared to give feedback about lifestyle. So that concept, I would really like to see more. Primary care, as you mentioned, George, is a wonderful place where we should support the implementation. And then the wider community as well. And finally, two concepts here I want to leave with you. One is, why not to go even earlier? I normally say it's never too early to start to prevent dementia, it's never too late either. So we want to go to schools and hear the concept, high five for life is something we want to support. And The second one is fingers for women, because we know that women have a higher risk, and there are differences in the risk profile. So worldwide fingers with the diversity and the possibility for data sharing, I think is a wonderful place to study this further. So, Charles, I'm so grateful for our partnership, and I really hope and believe that with joint forces, we can do much more. We need to be ambitious about prevention, and we need to move from observation to action. Thank you so much.
1: I am reminded by your comment that we can never start too early. The whole notion of a life course, since the most correlative feature other than aging to all dementia is education levels. And so figuring out how best to go all the way back into the entire life course and begin to get metrics that really track the impact of a variety of conditions on brain health. Turns out that violence in the home. There's a stressor that has a long-term effect. It turns out that the early youth mental illness has a predictive effect with dementia. So the ambition here is long, deep, and as you say, transformative, If we can do this together. The other reminder was a comment, as I remember, was John F. Kennedy, who said, the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. <laughs> right. So we don't wait until it rains to fix the roof. Drew Holzapfel, our Chief Operating Officer and my partner in this effort for, since the beginning is gonna give us a few notes about what DAC is actually doing in this respect.
4: Thank you very much. And I was so glad that George, my boss, could hear that rest and relaxation <laughs> is central to brain health. And I also wanna thank Dr. Victor Zhao for uh, serving on our board and appreciate your leadership. We're at the World Economic Forum Annual Meeting, so I'd be remiss if I also didn't thank Olivier Schwab, who's also on our board. And then also, we have two senior members from our team, Susan and Peter are here from DAC. We also have two of our funders here, Eli Lilly and Roche. They were in on this like almost from day one. So without your support, we couldn't be up here sharing with you what we're doing. What I'm going to do is talk through the three areas that we're focused on. And what I want to do is give you a couple examples of what we're doing, so this is by no means exhaustive. And after this, we'll turn it over to a free-ranging discussion that George will run so we can go into the details of this or talk about other things. One of the first areas of focus for the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative is equipping healthcare systems in the front line of care to improve access to treatments. In 2024, what we're really focused on is what we call eight flagship sites in five different countries. And we're working with those healthcare systems to improve the way we diagnose the disease. So we're trying to speed up the time from detection to diagnosis so that we can get care to the people who need it as fast as possible. We've heard that time is brain essentially in some of these earlier remarks. So that's a really important piece. And so what we build on as we build out this program this year is a foundation where we funded 19 programs in uh, 12 countries in 2023, where we've developed some insights on how you can speed up essentially this diagnostic funnel. So that's going to be an important program. It's going to be about $12 million that we put through eight different sites. So the second thing that we're focused on is creating a collaboration to scale Alzheimer's and brain health longitudinal and clinical trial research. I just want to give you a few examples of how we're thinking about this. We're initiating in India a group that is a high-volume eye clinics. We think the eye can be the window to the brain. And so what we're going to do is work with those ophthalmologists to help detect cognitive impairment and get them into the healthcare system. And so we're going to give that a try in India. We've also partnered with Canada last year to start to see if this works. And so what we want to do is create that connectivity, almost like a no-wrong door type of situation to the healthcare system where we're looking out for your brain and your brain health. We are starting to look at how brain health and climate change are interconnected. Important partner in that effort is going to be IHME. And we're going to look in Kenya, we're going to look in Colombia, and also in Chile. What we're going to do is we're going to take IHME satellite data. We're going to put wearables on people who are in longitudinal cohorts. We're going to start to take biosamples and we're going to do other measures that are relevant to seeing the impact of brain health. And so I think it's important, one, because we should know that information, but two, I think it gives us a way to work in other areas to increase the importance of brain health. Another thing that we're going to do that has been alluded to, and it started in Kenya with Dr. Ali who's here, who leads the Brain and Mind Institute. But what we've done in Kenya is we've taken some of the tools for measuring cognition That haven't been validated in that population. We're validating those tools in that population. Once they're validated, what we're going to do is start to build out people that we understand with their cognition. And we're going to put them almost in this clinical trial-ready cohort. And so that group of people then can go into pharmacological or non-pharmacological trials. This is where Mia's partnership is so important. So working with Fingers. So that's both lifestyle, and pharmacological. We're going to start with Medformin, but we see this as an opportunity to start to address some of the risk factors that you face at midlife. So really addressing cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, obesity, and finding ways to get those interventions into populations around the globe. And then the third thing that we're doing is, this is an important piece, finding a way to engage governments. There have been a lot of governments and international organizations that have made commitments to Alzheimer's. And so we're committed to working with these governments to make sure that we bring those commitments forward as a way to drive forward universal health coverage. One of the things that we've started and will continue to focus on in the United States is we think that the United States should be a big global funder of this public health initiative. So we've started working on the Senate across Congress to see if we can get legislation that would empower USAID to really come into this in a big, big way. So we'll continue to do that. For a long time, George and I have been working with the uh, G7, and so we're going to continue that focus last year. There was some movement forward under the leadership of the Japanese government where they reinforced the commitment to Alzheimer's disease. So we'll continue to work through the G7. We think that's an important channel. We'll look for partnerships within the G7 governments. But our board has encouraged us starting last year to really focus also on the G20. So that becomes a central part of our focus as well. So that's just a, a little bit of an example of what we're doing. Since our inception, we've been able to generate about $60 million that we've been pouring into this effort. We think we have about 135 programs going on. And so we think we're just getting going. I appreciate everybody who came and appreciate everybody's support. And I'll
1: turn it back to you, George. Just a little sampler. Next gives me a great uh, pleasure and honor to introduce Ambassador Luis Gallegos, the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ecuador and the chairman of UNITAR, which he will explain. But what's so exciting about the potential work that he is doing now and that we are going to potentially do together is this notion of how to go earlier and earlier and think about how to develop brains early in life and then in midlife with training. Dr. Gallegos. Dr. (laughs) In-law. Dr. In-law.
5: Thank you very much. Thank you, George. Thank you for this marvelous invitation. Sylvia and I are from the Global Initiative on Aging. I am the president of the board of UNITAR. UNITAR is the United Nations Agency for Research and Training. We train around half a million people a year. We have 30 offices around the world. My interest and my passion is aging. First of all, because I am aging. (laughs) We began this roadmap of aging because of the pandemic. We looked into the effects of discrimination on persons who are aging. At the time I was ambassador in New York, and in a good day, a thousand people would die, most of them from the aging population. But we saw an enormous discrimination in the treatment of aging, the issue of giving the respirator to the younger person. We saw the extraordinary incapacity of the health systems to deal with the problem of aging. And we still think that as we analyze what happened in the pandemic, We are still in the phase of understanding what happened to the world, the major crisis of the world of 193 countries that met with a pandemic that they didn't understand and that we have not gotten over. But one of the things that is a particularity of that crisis was that it affected all of us individually. We know people who have died. We had contagion. We were at risk of dying ourselves. We created the foundation to promote not only training from youth to aging, but to look into the cracks of the system and the gaps of the system. And uh, we are now fostering the negotiation of a UN convention for persons who are aging. Let me tell you my personal experience because I had the honor and the pleasure of being the president of the working group that developed the CRPD, the Convention for Persons with Disabilities. In the year 2000, disability was not on the international agenda. It came in after the convention was signed in 2006. And now it's one of the most successful UN conventions on human rights. It covers 1.3 billion people who are disabled. And then normally we calculate two persons for every individual who has a disability, the direct impact of family, community, healthcare, and so on. We use the same metrics for aging. We're 1 billion people who are aging at the moment. We're more aging people than children being born. There is a demographic shift in the societies of the world. That demographic shift is that we will be, maybe I won't be here and others won't be with here, there will be two billion people in the world by the year 2050, which is 26 years from now. And that means that the impact group and the people who are aging will be six billion people. It is a very daunting, example of what administrations and governments have to deal with. And to some of my reflections and personal reflection is that governments really are scared of dealing with the problem. So they kick the can down the road because this will affect their pension systems. Europe has a marvelous structure of a network. The United States does not. And 80% of aging live in the global south which does not have networks to support them. So we are in front of a change in the dynamics of the world that will make it complex to deal with health, although the WHO has a program of Healthy Aging, the Decade of Healthy Aging. ILO has a program for Active Aging, because as we progress, we are living longer, working more, more capable of working. But a person who is born today will probably be will reach 100 if he has the adequate lifestyle he requires and maybe more. My participation here is to say that it is extremely important that we teach the world in this very intense learning curve that brain health is fundamental for the people who are aging. We must have a joint capacity of being able to lobby not only governments, medical institutions, academia, and others, to understand the complexity of the phenomenon of this change in society we're living now and will be living in the near future. For our sons and daughters, for our grandchildren, if they are lucky, they will age. And we have to teach them since they're young that they have to have the capacity of dealing with this phenomenon of age. Where did we get the 65 years of age? There's a theory that we got it from Bismarck when he established the social security system in Germany in the 1800s. The world has changed. I'll leave you with the last thought. You need at the present moment, at least for the first 30 years of your life, to study, obtain your master's degree or your doctoral degree to be able to compete in a world. You work probably for another 30 to 35 years until you're 65, not really more, and you live another 30. The system wasn't built for that. The system can't maintain the appropriation because it was based on solidarity and substitution. You need children. You need new workers. Some countries will solve the problem by migration. Others cannot because of their culture. So it's very apt that we are in Davos talking about this because this has a parameter of rights, it has a parameter of economics, but it has a profound change in societies. I hope that what I've said today will make you and remind you that aging is one of the principal factors in the agenda of the future and that you and all will be motivated to age and I hope you have the luck of aging. Thank you very much.
1: So I'm going to throw out some questions to a couple people, but we're going to start raising hands in a few minutes. But I want to talk to an expert in Alzheimer's, Dr. Doriswamy, Morali Swami, to talk about what we have learned about the plasticity of the brain, the capacity of the brain to continue to build a capacity to both resist disease, but also to work productively in society. And what have we learned? Dr. Doris Doroswamy, for those who don't know, is from Duke. Now, well, we stand up. I'll give you a mic. But as you were standing up and as I give you a mic, Dr. Doris Doroswamy is from Duke and one of the most prominent KOL researchers in the Alzheimer's field in the world.
6: Thank you for inviting me to speak in front of this distinguished panel. When we were all training, we learned a saying from neuroscience, which says neurons that fire together, wire together. The important thing is the brain is plastic throughout our lifetime, so neuroplasticity is crucial for how babies learn because they use multiple senses. You bite on things, you feel it, you smell it, you throw it, see how it bounces. Engaging that kind of multi-sensory ability is what forms your brain's networks, and those networks are what are crucial for forming memories and experiences. Even late in adult life, neuroplasticity persists. You just have to stick with it for between 8 to 12 weeks. If you just try for a very short amount of time, then the neuroplasticity is lost. We've also learned of a number of electrical and chemical triggers that can enhance neuroplasticity in various rodent models. Those have not yet been applied to humans, but it's possible. So by extension, there is a concept called cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve can simply be thought of as How much excess networks have you built up in your brain over a lifetime of experience, education, your occupation, your social networks, et cetera? And that reserve capacity is what protects you from decline if you suffer from a neurodegenerative disease. So think of it as having excess cell phone towers. And the more cell phone towers you have, a couple get knocked out. You still have good signal. So it's very crucial for us to learn how to develop and monitor cognitive reserve. And through a combination of digital tools, sensors, we now have the ability with our smartphone to just assess each person's brain reserve and cognitive reserve. So that's going to also become very important. And by extension, I think in addition to all of the pharmacotherapies that pioneers are developing, we need to also develop ways that are non-pharmacological, like was mentioned, not just from the finger trial, one of the interventions that was used was cognitive remediation and cognitive training. Now with digital tools such as smartphone app, it's possible to create a closed loop system where you could do cognitive self-testing at home in the comfort and convenience of your home. You can also send those reports to your doctor and it can also decide to train what parts of your cognitive abilities were below normal. And so that closed-loop system has not been fully developed. There's a number of trials underway that suggest that cognitive remediation does help. It can improve memory. The question is, can cognitive remediation combined with pharmacotherapy prove much more beneficial than cognitive therapy alone or pharmacotherapy alone? So that's the kind of combination treatments we need to work with. So I'm just going to stop here. So I think it's important for us to focus just beyond pharmacotherapy and look at other kinds of non-pharmacological interventions.
1: Thank you. So I'm going to now ask Andrea Pfeiffer. Andrea Pfeiffer is the CEO of a very prominent, one of the world's finest biotech firms. She's headquartered in Switzerland. And I'm going to ask her whether it's really true that we might be able to get an Alzheimer's vaccine.
7: So also non-prepared question and answer for that matter. Let me maybe just go back one step. Since years, I actually believed and worked on the fact that the earlier we treat, the less impact it has on the brain health. And the earlier we treat, the more we preserve patient's life and obviously the benefit of having a healthy aging. Now, last year and this year, I was really impressed by the data which came out on two of the first therapies which we are expecting to have one approved and we have one hopefully very soon which clearly showed the earlier you go and really early means very early the more impact you have on people's health and even the reported health benefit can be doubled if you go earlier. So we have now very solid data and I'm super happy and I congratulate some of the people here like Eli Lili and so on, showing that this is true. What actually I believe since quite some years. Now, having said this, we are working since uh, many years on a vaccine for Alzheimer. We uh, improved the uh, technology for a long time, which finally allows us to have very good response identical to the antibodies, but what is very important, it's safe, so we have not seen any side effects, and what is even more important is that it produces antibodies against the pathological forms which lead to the disease. So these things we have worked out, so now what are we missing? We are missing that we have a population where we can test these vaccines, and by the way we have three vaccines since development, And for that, we need the collaboration with the governments. So to have access to the registries, clinical registries, we need private public partnerships. That's why I'm so active with George and supporting him so well. And I think we need also like a funding agency, if I may say so, for rich countries and not so rich countries because I think our work is really linked to providing a vaccine, a preventive vaccine for the world. And really, I would be so happy if there would be a vaccine out to prevent Alzheimer in the world and that's what we are working on. Now, to give an update, we just have started the first prevention trial in Alzheimer together with our partner Johnson Johnson So, it will be a preclinical population, and we hope to report data on that very soon. In the meantime, I just would like to support the work which George is doing, which Drew is doing in his organization, but also I would like to give some compliments to uh, Mia, who is a very close friend. Because I think at the end of the day, we have to combine pharmacological and non pharmacological applications. As you know, my background is very much in food. And uh, so I'm always looking at both things and I think it's really what we should think as an industry, how we can work together on combining these two. And I'm super happy that you will start with soon and I do know, because we're working on this together, that there is a special requirement for women. And together with me, we are starting an initiative also on what is required, what is so special about women's health. So if these small remarks, I would like to give back to George. In other words, I want to say there is hope.
1: <laughs> so Andrea and I have informally committed to try and get an Alzheimer's vaccine on market by 2030. Maybe ambitious because the trials here are going to have to be long, they'll be complicated, and uh, they have to be large and representative around the world. So, constructing the mechanism by which we can both understand the science of the vaccine, the safety of it in large populations and highly diverse populations, so that the world can trust a vaccine. And of course, the language here is going to be important because some of the sponsors of these new approaches are calling it an active immunotherapy because of the reaction of the world to the word vaccine. There was a fair amount of resistance, as we learned at the Edelman conference this morning. The world thinks that we're trying to foist things on them. There's a lot of distrust in the world. Uh, If you say, here is the solution, take it, as if they weren't involved and they're not there and they don't trust anyone that comes with them and says that. So the word vaccine impliedly has a lot of promises in it, as opposed to something that's a little more obscure, like active immunotherapies. But the same result there, and so part of what we're doing is communications. Understanding what is causing this distrust and thinking through the nomenclature we use. We've got some time here, to say the least, but in fact, that is one of the challenges here, as to how it is that we can get the world to trust a vaccine if it hasn't been tested in their country. And in fact is the government is saying, here it is, trust us, it's going to work. One more speaker and then I open up to questions and we'll come back to some my picked speakers. Zul. You didn't know you were going to speak. <laughs> Zul is the founder of the Brain and Mind Institute in Kenya at the Aga Khan Hospital there and the Aga Khan University, and so we are working there, as is Mia, together on active work in Kenya on how to introduce and wide-scale, in primary care or sort of community health worker context, and interventions that will actually improve brain health and suppress brain disease. Zul. Thank you, George. Thank you. I didn't
8: know you were going to ask me to speak, but. Here goes. Um, First of all, I wanted to thank Davos for really helping us embed our feet firmly onto this issue of healthy aging, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. So we're really, really very grateful for that. What I would like to say is that COVID has taught us one lesson, and that is you can develop a solution that's localized, but if you don't globalize it, it'll come back to bite you. So whatever we develop, in terms of solutions they need to be applicable globally. I think we've learned that from COVID. And in Kenya, there are regions that are pretty poor, they are not easily accessible, and we are trying to change the model of care, working right from the community outwards. The interventions that we're developing, their infrastructure that we're developing is right at the doorstep of the communities. We don't want to wait for them to come to the clinics when things get bad. This is again towards prevention, promotion, early detection, early intervention. I think those are the key things that we need to work about. In Kenya, the median age is around 2021. 20, that means half the population is below that age. But we've learned today that really if you want to do interventions, you need to start early. You don't wait till things get bad. So and we want to work across the lifespan. So we want to have interventions that are specific for different ages across Kenya. So with that, I think I won't say more, but really we're very excited because it's a message of hope. I think that we've heard a lot of doom and gloom, but really I think we are learning very quickly that things can be prevented, things can be detected, things can be treated, and like if you need to have a very robust tests and interventions very early on, and that will really help us solve the problems on the long term. So. With that, I'd say thank you. And also wanted to recognize Mia's work. So we are also working in partnership with prevention promotion with Fingers. And so we're trying everything we can in Africa. We have a nice, solid cohort of about 100,000 that is going to be clinical trial ready. Thank you.
1: So before I get my next victim, there's a lot of discussion already and you've been talked at. So I would love to have people who might put up their hand and say, what about this, or I disagree with that, or whatever the reaction is. But so I invite you. Yes, sir. Thank you for the lovely discussion. My name is Joshua Haines, American from accent. I live in Berlin,
9: Germany, where I run a mental health and brain health investment impact fund. So We're looking at investing in early stage companies, non-pharmacological to really, how do we catalyze mental wellness, not only focused on illness, but flourishing and the social determinants of mental health. We are seeing incredible innovations where those who have been successful in academia or the private sector who have been startup founders successful before coming together because of their own lived experience or their family's lived experience to creating solutions. Dementia, looking at Alzheimer's, of course, ADHD, a lot of neurodiversity. My question is, how can a community like this help to also foster that innovation that we need? We know the time to market on many of these trials the vaccines take eons, we don't have that time, and there are a number of other options using technology or not. And so how do we come together and look at, again, fostering this innovation ecosystem? Thank
1: you. What we're finding is the importance of a large array of early detection techniques and understanding <laughs> how best to move rapidly towards either a brain health intervention, a la Mia Cavapalto, or a therapeutic intervention. So I think what you're doing is incredibly important, figuring out how to take what you're doing and investing in and then causing it to scale, to try it in a place, to test it out, but to validate it in a way that's extensible and broadly applicable across Germany or across much broader geographic areas, I think is critical.
10: Hi, my name is Sylvia Nera. I'm from the Global Initiative on Aging, the vice chair with the wonderful leader, Ambassador Gallegos, which is also the chairman of UNITAR. And first of all, thank you, because this conversation is amazing. is so inspiring to see all these topics in the same table by civil society, public sector and private sector. Very much needed. and. Actually, I wanted to mention two things. One is to bring a little bit of a reality of the change of narrative that we live in right now, to follow up from Ambassador Gallegos, because he leads to this conversation. Because the world wasn't thought to live beyond 65 years old, and now we're 100. What are we going to do about it? We have a society that we have not thought structurally in a healthcare, social, economical aspect, how to be implemented, how to survive economically and in a positive way. So, brain health is number one. Because when you tackle brain health, it means that positive outlook in life, which brings inclusivity into society. Then you bring in labor inclusion, physical wellness, you bring in social integration, et cetera, et cetera. So as a community, as a institution and government body, it should be the number one thing that we should all be looking about. So it's actually very positive. We need to change the narrative about what it means to have a disease A disease is what it is, but we have ways to prevent. So concentrating our efforts on that should be one of the key factors to ensure that we live with a positive, profitable outlook in life so we are graceful and happy to age. So following your point, which I didn't get your name, Joshua. Actually, I was thinking about that before you. It's like you read my mind. Education on the things that we already know. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of research, clinical trials that have proved the lifestyle, nutrition simple methodologies that we know that works to use that plasticity that, I didn't get your name either, Professor, that you mentioned, (laughs) the neuroplasticity, I'm so sorry, that works, that we can prevent. But we have not been taught in a school, in education, we have not been taught at an early age that we have those skills, that we are capable of taking charge of our brain and our health. We have a lot more to do and empowerment to do within our health that we've been told. We thought initially when the genetic research worldwide came out in the world we thought that we were all a product of of our genes and we have realized that we have as many genes as a butterfly which is ironic so what it means is that we are product of our epigenetics and what that means is our product of our lifestyle of our environment how we understand our interpretation of what happens to us activates or doesn't activate well, we are more prone or not to be. So we can be empowered. Again, brain health. How do we do that? We educate from the beginning. Now that we have this amazing group of individuals here, let's come up with a solution how we support this DAC initiative to an extra layer of education to start now. No wait for the trials. Implement now with education with the things that we already know. Implement with the education to make sure that we're reinforcing the seniors, we're reinforcing the whole population. Bring away well- campaigns, educate. The people doesn't know. People doesn't know that we have a a way of empowering your brain and that will have a direct impact on who you are as an individual for the longevity of your life. So let's do something about it. You have the funds. We have the knowledge. Let's get something going.
1: (laughs) Somebody admired greatly, once said the GDP measures financial performance, it measures economic performance, but it measures nothing that really matters in life. Love, purpose, connection to God and the like. So it is so right that we ought to be thinking those are products of the mind, the brain. (laughs) I think Antonella was next, founder of the Women's Brain Project and a great champion for women's health.
11: Actually, I wanted to respond to Joshua. What do we need to bring innovation to patients? And this goes with a story. I belong to the team of scientists who have developed aducanumab, the first disease-modifying treatment that was approved in the United States. This molecule has been developed in Switzerland, not far away from where we are having this wonderful lunch, but nevertheless, European patients and Swiss patients can't access drug. Now we can debate whether the drug works, doesn't work, can work better, we should start maybe earlier with the treatment, this is to real real-world evidences and medicine to determine, but the real fact is that we invest in Europe our private money as citizens contributing to taxation, but also the one of, you know, investors and public funds into great research that get benefited elsewhere. So as a European, this is a topic that is very dear to me. I worked as a regulator as well. And uh, it was a painful exercise to see that brilliant science that getting supported by, as I said, European funding, it's not serving the patients in Europe. And it's about years of delay. And now we know that time is brain. So for me to have a dear one that maybe has a early diagnosis of Alzheimer, and aducanumab was approved already two years and a half ago, to a point where I could do something, but I can't access the drug because it's not available in my territory. And by the way, my scientists have developed it. That's the paradox of things. So we have to act on our mindset as European to be more prone to risks, We have to talk about pricing of drugs because, of course, for drug developers, there is a true benefit to bring a drug into the United States because pricing it is more rewarding. It is a much higher price, which there is a direct interest to bring a drug first in that market than elsewhere. And finally, it's the mindset, as I said, the ability to be able to take a risk of having a drug that maybe is not wonderfully characterized yet, but still might have a huge impact on our well-being, life long and... I think that Europeans have a lot to do and regulations should be slightly lifted. And I think we're getting worse and worse. GDPR is going to mess it up. So think about it and let's do something about it. And about the Women's Brain Project, I want to conclude just saying one word. You have to allow me that, George. It is my it's third true. child. I have two kids. That's my <laughs> third one. The Women's Brain Project started in 2017. We were the first organization worldwide to say Alzheimer's is female. Roger Nitsch, my mentor, the one who developed he said, Antana, what are you doing? Is it really true with George? That's what data says. Um, George, sorry, uh, Roger, this is what data says. <laughs> and at the end, when I met Roger, just last year in a congress, you were right. It's not only about the number, the prevalence, but it is about the trajectory of the disease, how fast women decline with Alzheimer's compared to men. It is how the women respond to the treatment. And that's a very delicate topic that we do not like to really debate, especially it's a difficult one. But what we know from aducanumab, lecanumab, and gantanerumab, is that there is a trend that shows that women do not respond to treatment. Now, this is a huge elephant in the room. It's a Pandora box. We need to understand nevertheless the reason why. We need to generate the science that explains us why it's this is the case, and why women maybe need to be considered much more in clinical development and diagnostic, not to talk about the misdiagnosis of women across the board because the brain health is really female. It's about, Alzheimer, depression, anxiety, migraine, multiple sclerosis, you name it, you have it. So longevity as well, women live longer. And I conclude quoting data from the OECD. They just informed us that those countries who provided data to the OECD have the tendency to have, of course, the confirmation as we know that more women have Alzheimer, but sadly, we know that more women are institutionalized as compared to men, meaning living in a elderly home or in a nursery home. And surprise, surprise, which for me, as a psychiatrist, it's a shame. Women receive a higher prescription of antipsychotic, and antipsychotic, this is worldwide, all the OECD data provided, and antipsychotic are a proxy indicator of poor standard of care. With this, I leave you.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I a question or comment over here.
12: Hi, I'm Dr. Noemi Lepertel, and I started my career in research for apoptosis in neural cells for cancer at Columbia, and now I run the Institute for Global Flourishing. So what I found after working in pediatric oncology and these other divisions in neurology is that A lot of the problems that we see originate in the workplace. And so it's both an area of challenge. We spend most of our working lives there and also an area of opportunity. So my research is on workforce flourishing and the different levers for brain health and sustainability from a workforce perspective and longevity. And at the Harvard Human Flourishing Program, we have a big study. It's the Global Flourishing Study. And it aims to be the largest study on the world's flourishing, looking at mental health, physical health, and a number of different proxies from childhood predictors all the way across the lifespan. And so that's underway with Gallup and Baylor University and Harvard. And the call to action that I wanted to put forward was really for leaders in the room who are working in organizations. What can we do and how can we join forces to seize the opportunity to really work on the workforce, to upskill people, to understand the role of their brain health and how it impacts not only organizations, society, the economy, but the future of our society. And so in April, I'm hosting through this working group on the economics of well-being and global flourishing at Harvard, a summit, and I'd love to invite you to partner and invite you all if you'd like to come and contribute your leadership so that we can continue the conversation after Davos. So thank you and hope to meet you.
1: We will have someone at your summit. We have a business collaboration for Brain Health that has a number of companies involved, including Eli Lilly, but a number, AARP and others. We'd very much like to participate, so we'll do that. We have a question here.
13: Hi, I'm Mikhail Epperly, and I work at Roche in a role focused on brain health and women's health. And I wanted to build on Sylvia's inspiring plea to work together. And actually, a number of people have reiterated this by just sharing a bit about Roche's priorities and saying that we know we can't go it alone. We really need to partner with organizations like you all. So... If any of these things resonate with you, please reach out to me. So one of the areas that we're focused on is data generation. And this really starts from Simona's brainchild. And what are the gaps in information that we need for prioritization and funding of brain health? I'll get back to that in a moment. The second area is awareness and education for the public, for clinicians, and frankly, in our internal organization as well. And then the third area where DAC's really taken a leadership role is health system optimization. Everything in order to optimally deliver care. That can be policy setting, clinical guideline development, tests of medical practice change. And we really need external partnerships to make those effective. I wanted to get back really quickly to the data generation because it pulled some of the data that we've been generating in partnership with IHME and thought it would be helpful to share a statistic related to Alzheimer's considering DAC is our convener here. You may already know this, but if you look at just Switzerland over the past 20 years for disease burden of brain health disorders, Alzheimer's is ranked number two with 14% of the total disability adjusted life years. But if you look at burden in a different way, by direct spending, Alzheimer's jumps up number one, by far, with 38% of direct spending associated with Alzheimer's. And yet, if you look at a different measure, lost income, Alzheimer's drops down to rank number 13 with 2.5% of lost income, not surprisingly because of the age force that Alzheimer's impacts. But I say all this because depending on your agenda, you can find any data point to make your case. I think the strength in our message is gonna be us speaking with the same data, the same definitions. And I ask us all, how will we measure and quantify brain health moving forward?
1: And here next.
14: Ian Hickey, I'm a psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Center, so the same name, at the University of Sydney question talking with George and others yesterday. I want to take up your concept about vaccines. This is one we've addressed in the mental health field more generally. I've started to use the terminology of social vaccines, which include a whole range of strategies of the things that you do. So to build on the strength of vaccines, people understand vaccines prevent things. And many of us, of course, are the beneficiaries of childhood vaccines for polio and many other diseases, which is sort of lost at the moment, but people kind of understand that. It goes to the issue of trust that you were raising, George. I think the issue is one of choice that sits behind that. If you talk for vaccines they include the social options, as Mia has elegantly outlined, and including that is the choice to add medical factors to that, particularly if you're genetically at risk or socially at risk or for some other reason, and don't have the top-down kind of approach that unfortunately during the pandemic governments would decide for you and people were reacting against that. So I think there's a, there is a narrative and a public relations issue about how to bring together Mia's type of work to use the strength of the concept of vaccines, but tie it to choice on an ongoing basis. I think the second thing relates to the terminology of this brain capital. We have a forum tomorrow at the Hard Rock Hotel. We've been talking about mental wealth. It's something you build across the whole time. It's not just the individual brains adding up to brain capability. It's also the social cohesion, the collective to make decisions and we're developing metrics of that. So having metrics of measuring not just the individual capability, which I think really actually elegantly set out, we now have the technologies for that through smartphones, through other devices to do that. But how you add that up is an individual capability question, plus the social collective, the social actions that spring from that. And to then have organisations and governments. And we wish we could persuade national health organisations, not just to talk about infectious diseases, but to talk about growing health. And I say, we've had some success with this in Australia with the mental wealth concept, where previous Prime Minister, Conservative Prime Minister say, that's what we should invest in. The future of our country is not digging up and selling minerals, it's actually inside people's heads and the social behaviour. And in particularly developed countries, we had to get smarter about that. So I think that was one that politicians and economists and others, some of the problems been in the health area, going back to pandemics made this somewhat worse, vaccines, it's all infectious diseases, and the rest is just sort of low lifestyle choices, not real. So that's where I come back to where I started. I think actually the vaccines is a strong word, but it needs to be tied to a social concept and tied to one of choices that people can actively make that empower communities that will be available across the world in different ways and to use that collectively, you grow the mental wealth of a country, and that is the real value beyond the GDP.
5: Good.
15: I thank you for the work you're all doing. It's amazing. I don't come from this space organically. I'm a lawyer and a technologist, and I've been in technology for 20-some years. I've negotiated trade agreements, written laws, trying to help governments understand what's happening in the world of tech. But I started in IP, and one of the use cases I learned about first, which kept me going in this lane, was breast cancer and how one company held all the tests and all the data because of their IP. And so I made three points just listening, and I'll share a little bit of why I'm sitting here quickly because there's others that I want to hear from selfishly. An Alzheimer's data bank would be a brilliant contribution for this collaborative. And I'm asking you to think about it because I've been sitting in... And I've worked on AI solutions for a long time, and AI is fed by data. And it is only good if good data goes in and proper data goes in and transparent provenance-led data goes in. And people are developing health solutions and many mental health solutions based on really crappy data. So I really encourage this group of thinkers, you're the leaders in the world, to contribute to one central space of your excellence, of what you know to be true and put it in a place because then the world's innovators can actually take it and go faster. They can innovate way faster. So that's my first contribution. My second contribution is what I've spent 13 years testing. It was this idea of what could we do in our world as it's interrupted by technology chronically and designed to interrupt us to bring us back together. Because when I started looking at my family, who's, we've gone through Alzheimer's, many generations of it, I thought, okay, it got worse when people were alone. That was my observation. The more alone, the worse it got. The more traumatic response came, the more people didn't know how to react to it. It lacked empathy in treatment and so on. It's not a nice thing to watch. But when you look at stuff about blue zones, I don't know if some of you have studied the blue zones. Okay, community. It's kind of a trend, right? Inclusion. And what brings people together is really simple. It's kindness. It's doing things in the community together. And so I started an innovative experiment, we'll call it that, 13 years ago, called Kind Village. And it was actually an economic modeling based off Michael Porter and Mark Kramer's shared value model. And I thought, what could we do to get businesses not giving cash? They give cash. Yes, we want that. We like cash. But getting everybody in their company out in the community, thinking about in kind philanthropy, because it has a bottom line calculable metric and it's in law. And how could we get everybody feeling valuable to their contribution that they're making personally in a corporate environment? And how could we just exponentially test this out? And we tested it out on hunger. We tested it out on poverty and we're now testing it out, which is my third point in Ukraine, in high conflict, acute stress zones. And so we're partnered with a hospital in Ukraine who uh, is built by Ukrainian. He's resilience is outstanding and really something to see. The hospital is called Superhuman Center, and his response to getting the government to drop a number of bombs on his house because there were missiles being launched from his backyard at Kyiv, was to build this hospital to treat veterans immediately, to amputate them. It's called Superhuman Center, for those that don't know we are engaged with it. And now we're working on a program which involves 15 different executives and their institutions and their experts, uh, so psychologists, psychiatrists, developing, uh, I believe it's one of the first mental health protocols that is going to be delivered in modules digitally to the hospitals in Ukraine developed with them, and then creating a coaching community, mental health coaching community, and then it will be scaled around the world. And it's being done 95% within kind. So you can't call money the barrier to progress, it's not. And the will is huge and the need is huge. So if anybody wants to learn more about anything I said, I'd be happy to chat about it. But thank you very, very much for having me today, George, and for this great initiative.
1: Great, great time. In a number of communities around the world, there are grandmas benches where basically grandmothers go, sit, and people are invited to come and just have conversation. And it proves to be at some level of psychiatric benefit, clinical benefit, a very powerful idea. So what you're doing is great. Me and I totally agree on your notion of a common data set both of us independently committed and now we're jointly committed to putting it in something called the Alzheimer's Disease Data Initiative, which basically has been done by the Gates Ventures. So that's where we're going with that idea. But it's a, exactly right. Jim Taylor. <clears throat> Jim Taylor is the chair and president of Voices of Alzheimer's.
9: I'm the voice of the patient. My wife was diagnosed 12 years ago, was recently institutionalized. It's the first time I've traveled without her. What's most important for me to say is thank you for every patient, every caregiver, and all those of us who don't know that we're going to be patients or caregivers. Thank you, because it's so important what you're doing. It's vital to us, and you don't hear it often enough. We don't take the time to thank you, but we really know that our lives and our children's lives are dependent on what you're doing. My wife is a double four. So we know that our son is highly likely to develop this disease. He's 45. Joshua said we don't have eons. 20, 20, 30 may be aggressive for a vaccine, but not in my eyes. So one of the things I look at is how do we get from the microscope to the infusion? I'm afraid there are a couple of points that are critical that we're not looking at sufficiently. All the testing we've talked about here today can only be used in patients when it's been validated in heterogeneous clinical trials. Less than 1% of people in the United States participate in clinical trials, Alzheimer's. Cancer is six to eight, but cancer has many, many proven solutions, alternatives. We have very few, if any. One of the things we must do if we're going to bring any of these therapeutics to market is look at increasing participation rates in clinical trials. And I hope you will help us do that because we can't just stay in our silos. We have to look at cross-silo challenges. The other problem I'm really concerned about is now that we have therapies, it's estimated in the United States that we will have soon a three- or four-year wait to see a neurologist or a specialist who can prescribe. So it's an oxymoron to have an early stage treatment if I can't get it for three or four years. That's not an incentive to get diagnosed. So one of the things we must do and the DAC is helping with is find out how we train, how we support, and how we incent by changing our reimbursement structure general practitioners, not just in the United States, but across the world, because you won't be able to do it in Kenya, you won't be able to do it in Europe, or in Asia, unless we train our general practitioners more in their universities, but also now we must learn what it is we have to do to educate them. So I hope you all gain an appreciation for that concern. We all have many concerns, but it's one that, from a patient point of view, is very important to us in getting treatment. Thank you.
1: Uh, I think I'd like to end there. I do want to hear from Lily. Just for a minute, if I could, or two minutes. Lily is both in the cardiometabolic business, in a big way, also in Alzheimer's business, hopefully in a big way. And you can solve this whole problem for us, Ilya.
16: <laughs> Lily, if I lead international for Lily and. In- One, it's great to have so many different stakeholders here, excited with energy to make a difference. And Jim, thank you for, I know you've inspired so many people at our company to work faster. I think one of the things that maybe I would comment on is that we can't lose this time and milestone where it's taken too long to have some therapies that will have, I think, access to many people across the globe. That's our mission but that's not the end to this journey. And I think we need to accelerate and create the sense of urgency to utilize from a data standpoint. If we're going to create and understand science, everything, both pharmacokinetic, but also lifestyle, we needed data sets and standards, a platform or way to share data across the globe where other diseases, we have the ability to do that from a registry standpoint. I don't think we are at that point where we have the standards there. The other piece that Jim mentioned is the sense of urgency to bring ways to diagnose much faster in a simple way that's cost effective. And I think that science is moving quickly, but we need to help push that forward from a regulatory standpoint across the board. Because without it, there will be, from a capacity standpoint, the ability to not just from an education standpoint, but the tools necessary, it will be difficult to make a change. And then maybe the third, which is what we all can do in different seats, different hats that we wear, is to have a collective to have the sense of urgency for governments to act, to have funding for the ecosystem that needs to build out. Not just the treatments, but it's not just the treatment. It has to be the full ecosystem. And as I travel around to different markets, it's amazing to see the variability in how brain health is actually structured. And some have good centers of excellence, but they're very isolated in their capacity. And some, it's very dispersed. And I think we have an opportunity here to change that and change the rhythm and the momentum of what is yet to come maybe my other point, because my mission and mandate is to actually bring our innovation outside of the U.S., I'm committed to working with a lot of different governments to figure out in Europe, in particular, on how to actually solve bringing innovation forward much faster. I think that is a critical component that Europe is struggling with, and there are ways to solve that. So we're committed to working through that, not just for Alzheimer's, but the broader cardiometabolic that is also a key component of brain health.
1: Okay, I, I. I can't say yes to Lillian, not to Roche. So uh, Simona, last word.
7: What I wanted to comment on was to what Jim was saying. We talked a lot about the long-term things, but I think there are short-term things that really matter to patients and caregivers. And one of the things that I said to you earlier, George, is that when you look at the data, economic data, and what drives the cost in the society today is really in the developed worlds, including Europe, is the cost of nursing homes. And I think maybe when you were asking where to invest, how do you create value in that space? I think that could create a lot of value for patients and families, but also for societies. So let's be a little bit short-term focused as well, because I think that will really matter to people that are struggling with that today. Thank you very much.
1: Your last comment reminded me of a, Apocryphal, but I think a real conversation that was had with uh, the guy who invented the polio vaccine. So Salk was uh, told, as iron lungs and leg braces were needed for polio victims, he was told, we need more iron lung hospitals. We need more leg brace hospitals. And Salk said back, no, we need a cure. So Andrea's gonna deliver that for us, and so we were told. <laughs> I want to thank you all. You've stayed around. You've been very patient. It was a great conversation. We love you all. We want you all part of the DAC team. So thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for tuning into the Brain Health News Podcast. Be sure to visit healthunmuted.com for more information about brain health. Please also visit www.davosalzheimerscollaborative.org for more information about the work they're doing to promote brain health and end Alzheimer's globally.